All right, guys. Inappropriate Earl is back in the house. You know the type of guests I seek out. My favorite musicians and actors, pro wrestlers. We've had some good ones. Stephen Piercy from Rat, Fred Corey from Cinderella, Joey Allen from Warrant. We've had Nita Strauss from Alice Cooper. And today I am incredibly humbled and honored to have uh, one of my favorite singers from back in the day. Um, he was in a band called Wild Side, formerly known as Young Guns. And they... I think, in my opinion, fall into that category of bands that should have been much bigger, uh, along with Shark Island. Where are you, Richard Black? Um, you're next on my hit list. Uh, might have trouble. I think I'll have an easier time getting Vinnie Vincent than uh, Richard Black. But today's guest, his name is Drew Rose, but you might know him a little better from the Wild Side days as Drew Hanna. Mr. Rose, thank you for coming. Uh, hey there, Earl. How you doing? Thanks for having me. No, no, it's uh, I was a huge am a huge fan of Wildside. Um, nineteen ninety two, under the influence, Andy Johns. I mean, you guys had incredible momentum with that album. We did. Um, I thought things would be a lot different than they are, <laughs> but that's the way it goes, I guess. I mean, Paul Stanley co-wrote a song. Yep. You know, Clock Strikes 12, if I'm not mistaken. You're correct. Yeah, Paul wrote a song. Uh, we had some hit songwriters involved. Um, Jim Valance. Jim Valance. Uh, we actually wrote a song that didn't make the record. Uh, actually, we, we retooled a song that didn't make the record that was written by Wes Arkeen and Axl Rose that we were slated to add to the record after we reworked it. But uh, so, yeah, we, we had an opportunity to work with a lot of great musicians. Now, 1992, uh, kind of a uh, transitional period in the uh, definitely the L.A. Uh, music world. I mean, you had bands, uh, you know, Guns N' Roses was, uh, although they'd been around for a few years, I think that was uh, around the Use Your Illusion one and two albums and, uh, you know, grunge was kind of starting to pop out Nirvana. Uh, what was it like to be a glam band and not necessarily see the end coming, but going, wow, we're glam and what's happening is not glam. Yeah. Um, oh my God, I've told this story and I, 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 I relive it in my mind so many times. It was, a uh, a really exciting moment for us around 1988. We wrote the right songs, got the big record deal. We were being courted by the label as if we were going to be the next big thing. Recorded up at Eddie Van Halen's house. Uh, we recorded at A&M Studios. Tons of money being thrown at us from all sides. And, and of course, you know... All of a sudden we had business managers and accountants and all the, all the, all the assholes, I guess you could say that came, you know, into play. And, uh, and we were starting to act like something really big was going to happen. And, uh, it took a really long time to get that record recorded. There were a lot of issues involved. And I think ultimately it just sat for quite a while before we got a chance to get it out. It was in the, in the can uh, early 91, I believe I'm trying to remember it's been so long and it sat for almost a year 
just because they were trying to time things. And of course, as you know, that was a crucial year in waiting for our music to come out where radio was already making a massive change with the kinds of uh, records they were playing. And they were being told by all the labels to play this new band and play this new band. They were all coming out of the North, the Northwest, you know? And um, so by the time we, we launched, you know, it was a tough road for us. We got out there, we played constantly two years straight, just on the road touring work in the radio stations, picking up more and more stations. But at the end of the day, the label was just done. And we were sort of burned out on that, not getting the support from them that, uh, that we hoped for. And it was super disappointing. And ultimately what happens is you start with infighting, accusing each other of things on the road, uh, drugs, crazy amounts of drugs because depression sets in. Everybody's thinking this is it. Now what? You know, and uh, you got to go back to the drawing board. And it was a really, really tough, tough thing to try and do. And that's where things started to fall apart internally. And I think when, when the lead guitar player and my main songwriter, um, you know, opposite me, Brent Woods, um, we just weren't getting along and we, for all the wrong reasons, just, but we weren't getting along anymore. Um, and he, and we just parted ways and, and that's when everything fell apart really. Right. And then I think he ended up, uh, later with Vince Neal's yeah. band. It wasn't long before Vince picked him up because he's just a, he's a, an amazing talented musician and he's been, he's on the road right now with Sebastian Bach you know, playing guitar for him. So he's probably the only one out of all of us who's survived the music business and managed to sustain it for as long as he has. Because I think in like 91, 92, like, you know, Vince Neil's album Exposed with, uh, I think, Steve Stevens and Dave Marshall on guitar. Uh, that was a, like a really good album. It was on MTV a lot. So, I mean, the scene wasn't completely dead yet. No. But... Well, yeah, I mean, Vince Neil... I mean, Motley Crue, and the, the following was massive. So wherever Vince went, the the crowd was there. But a young band like us, you know, it was just really hard to break through. And um, we were starting to play larger venues through the Midwest, 3,000, 6,000, 8,000. It was starting to happen. But it was also starting to close up in key parts of the country, like the East Coast. Forget the West Coast, except for LA, you know. Um, and those are areas where there's huge, huge market shares. And we just couldn't, we just couldn't get anywhere with those radio stations. Do you think there was, uh, I, I know Nirvana's Smells Like Teenage Spirit kind of gets the credit for, okay, you had the Cherry Pie video with Warrant and then you had Nirvana's video. It was like, oh, wow. That, that, was there a, a band, a video, or a, do you think there was a particular moment in time where it was like, it's over? Not necessarily for you guys, but for the, the genre overall. It just was the flood. You know, once they once they figured it out that this kind of depressing kill yourself, do heroin kind of music was was picking up everywhere and the sales were starting to really jump. You know, America needed something different. Party rock had seen its end and, you know, at least run its course for the moment. I, I'm not so sure that how many times can you write about these chicks and cars and 
more chicks and cars, man. So at not enough. Point, I mean, I love it, and I listen to it every day. Still, I, some of my favorite uh, music, and I and you know, I'm 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 fifty, you know. So I mean, I still get down with this stuff all the time, and I don't put on Nirvana or any of that kind of stuff. Although listening to it now. I, re- I recognize how amazing some of the songwriting is and some of the ways that those songs are put together. But forget Nirvana for a minute and let's start talking about all the other ones that came in behind them. I mean, there were just like the party rock bands. There were all, I mean, hundreds of them, you know, and some of them got really big and some of them had a moment in time, just like, you know, we did. And some, of them just, you know, and they, most of them are all gone. Where are they? They're all, I mean, you know, we, can you think of like five of them right now that were as big as Nirvana? Maybe five. You know, yeah. Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, um, Alice in Chains. Yeah. Although uh, you know it's they, a little different these days. But um, and again, I was huge Alice in Chains fan. Huge. They somewhere they were somewhere on the line of both sides of that. You know, because of the way that they their heavy sound. You know, but um. All that stuff went away too, pretty quick. Actually, it didn't even last a decade. Well, I think uh, the boy bands kind of killed them. Uh, you know, the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC, yeah. who I kind of almost thought were uh, glam bands in their own. Like, you know, I went to a Backstreet Boys concert, and uh, it was one of the better concerts I've ever been to. Great, great hooks, great melodies, you know, those... lots of fun music, and the girls were there, man. Yeah, I mean, I was the oldest guy in the arena by like twenty five years, so I felt like. <laughs> Sandusky running around the Allstate Arena, but uh, that's great. You know, I'm a sucker for those Desmond Child, you know, type of uh, songs. Yeah, me too. Now, did you guys uh, ever come uh, close to riding with Desmond Child? Because he seemed to put his footprint on a lot of bands. Um, no, there was talk about who to write with, and we were always scratching our heads, more like, why are we writing with anyone? I mean, I. I kind of prepared for some of these questions and thinking about them ahead of time. And, you know, the thing with, um, the songwriting part of it, you know, the, the, we always wrote about our experiences. We were a Hollywood band. We lived in Hollywood. Uh, and so a lot of the stuff you hear on the record is, is Hollywood based stuff, you know, things that were happening to us at the moment. And you can hear those, uh, those songs on that record and they just, to me, they sound better because when, when we, when we performed them, when we recorded them and I sang them, quite frankly, I, I, there was a, there was a real passion for what I was singing about because it was an experience in my life at one point or another. Um, maybe a little bit of paraphrasing in some of those songs, but it was all there. When we started to write with some of these outsiders because the label felt we weren't quite there yet. We didn't really understand that. It was, uh, we, we thought they signed us because we had great songs and now all of a sudden they're changing us. And I'll never forget that I had a meeting with, uh, A&R executive Tim Devine at the time who signed us to Capitol. And, um, he probably wouldn't remember this, but there was a comment made to one of the other execs while I was standing just outside of his office. And I heard him say, yeah, this is our warrant. This is our slaughter. This is our skid row. And it bugged me so much because as I appreciated what those guys did and the sound that they had, 
I certainly didn't compare us to that in, in, you know, but I guess that's how the music business sort of worked. You know, they were all out there looking for that angle that sounded like this guy or that guy, obviously. And, uh, a bit naive, I guess you could say, to the music business rather than just the music, you know? I mean, because to me, that's just as a fan, I, you know, what killed the genre wasn't grunge or, or it was just the copycat bands. Like yeah. you had like Rat was popular and then you had bands that sounded like Rat and, and looked like Rat and then you had bands that sounded like the bands who looked like Rat and, you know, and then you had Cinderella and then you had Britney Fox and then... Uh, I mean, it, am I right or wrong in that? Like, I, you know, it's like with any genre, what killed grunge was, you know, the Pearl Jam look, sound alike bands. And, or is it just kids grow up and want to listen to new stuff? I think it's a bit of both, but absolutely the, the sound alikes, lookalikes, and I guess you, like you say, copycat groups. Um, it's just overkill. It's too much it's saturation. I don't see so much of that going on today because people are, we were talking about this earlier with, with the internet and everything. There's just, you can listen to music from all over the world and people get into so many different ways to listen to music that it's not like you have the radio that you're stuck with, you know, or what was one time MTV, you know, you were, you were being programmed to listen to music a certain way back then. Um, and that's another thing is MTV was a big, big, you know, game changer for a lot of these kinds of bands like us. You know, if you got your, your, your chick video onto MTV, man, that was it. it, it you, you were instant success. And, uh, I remember I flew to New York with management to meet with all these people at MTV and the discussion about getting us on and when it was going to happen, how it was going to happen, all this, you know, and they wanted us to make a music video for our, our one of our softer ballad style songs. Which one? Uh, 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 just Another Night? Yeah, that so. was that was the one that everybody from radio to to all the way through. And we were stubborn. And again, this is a, a naive move by a young band who felt like there was some integrity to the music rather than just sell out. You know, um, and when I say naive, because naive to the business, you know, and, and we didn't understand that the label MTV, all the people involved that wanted to make money or figure out a way to, to have success with this thing needed, um, they needed an instant hit, an instant success, no growth. And I, I grew up with album music. You know, I would sit and listen to album tracks long before I ever listened to anything that was popular on the radio. So we wanted the album to build, you know, we wanted to release songs like Hang on Lucy and, and these harder edge songs that represented what the band was and, and, you know, not just go for the big, you know, sort of commercial radio song. And, uh, ultimately we fought and we won. And I think in the end we really lost because everyone sort of went, eh, they're not listening to us. They're not going to listen to us ever. Let's just kind of walk this way and let them do their thing. Things will burn out and then we'll figure this out in the end. And, uh, we were on the road, got a call from the label saying that, yeah, you know, after a long time of touring that it was probably time to come back and work on the next record. And we were only two tracks deep on radio. We were thinking at that point that Just Another Night was going to be the one that sent it home. And uh, they were like, nah, we're, we're not, we're not going to push that one. Just come home. We'll do a new record. And we, we were f contracted to do at least a second record with them, but we were so frustrated with it. We walked away from the whole thing, not 
again, realizing that what we were really walking away from, we could have retooled a lot of things, thought about where music was going and had that second shot, not knowing whether capital would ever have done anything the right way at the time, but we, we were stupid <laughs> and walked away from a, a major record deal at the time. Well, I mean, you know, as a fan, I never thought that era would end. I mean, you know, I mean, we were talking about it off the air, you know, the Sunset Strip was just a party zone and like an ant farm of horny people. I mean, and, and I guess when you're in, in the middle of that area, like this is never going away. And, and you know, certainly uh, the mid 90s were, were tough for glam bands. I mean, didn't you guys have an album come out in like 95? Yeah, that was a big, big, weird thing because I had, I lost Brent and replaced him with another guitar player who I knew, a friend of the drummers at the time. He was in a band on Geffen called The Graveyard Train. I, I don't know much about them, but a guy named Bruce Draper, he, he kind of leans along the lines of a Jimmy Page blues guitar player rather than, you know what Brent Woods represented, which was exactly right up my alley. You know, I, I just, every time Brent wrote a lick, I knew right where to go and vice versa. And we were just really, really connected when we, when, when we wrote together. And, um, so trying to write with a guy who I didn't really understand and try to put a record together in a time when music was changing, we tried really hard ourselves to make some changes to the sound. It was probably a huge mistake because that album is not even something I listen to that often. Although some of the songs are pretty cool. It's just not, it was just the wrong move to make because our fans were expecting something more along the lines of what we did on the first record. And we couldn't, we couldn't, I, not with that lineup, I couldn't put that together. So, um, that was really the last nail on what I call the, the coffin there. Cause that was when we got slammed by any critics who were even willing to listen to the record at that point. And, and at that point, this was way into what was already over for wild side or any of that kind of genre. I think, you know, I mean, let's face it, even the biggest bands were taking a hiatus. Huge, yeah, you know, everybody was saying, Let, let's sit back, see where this goes. We'll all resurface again when all these youngsters turn into old farts and they want to come back to the concerts again, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, that's kind of what happened. I think uh, Piercy had left Rat and uh, formed a band with Fred Corey, two, two uh, former guests of Inappropriate Earl, and uh, formed a band called Arcade. Great and, uh, band, great music, loved it. I think right the year before you guys put out that yeah. album, 94, it, uh, Arcade's first album was like, wow, this is really good. And it I was. It was think it album. sold 20,000 copies. Yeah. And uh, it could have been a Rat or Cinderella album. And yeah. it was just like, was it intimidating to see like a uh, someone with uh, the success of a, a Piercy type go, okay, if he's not having success, you know, what are we like? Yeah, I got, I got, I got, I went into, if you listen to the second record and, and again, like I, I don't listen to that often, but I was listening to it last two, maybe two weeks ago. I have it in my um, phone. And so it through Bluetooth, I was in the car and I just decided to listen to it and I hadn't heard it in years. And, and um, I'm trying to put myself back there and what I wrote 
And oh man, I was going through some real depression, which was in perfect line for what all the other songs on the, on the radio were about. So it didn't seem odd to me back then, but now, I mean, it's just, I can't imagine anybody who, who really liked Wild Side's first album, which great hooks, great songs, uplifting, nothing really depressing at all, um, real positive stuff. And then all of a sudden, wow, they go out and buy this and go, what the f is this? You know, this is like, so toss it out right away. But now, you know, listening back to it, it was um, some interesting stuff, but not not the greatest for me. You know, I left the country trying desperately to run from myself. You know, I, I just, I, I couldn't get away from myself. I just kept going. And I went to, uh, I went to Sydney and lived there for a while until they, my visa ran out, you know, um, I, I just couldn't, it, we had traveled and I wanted to go to back to some of these places. And I just, um, you know, was in a really bad place and got back to the U S probably around the time that you're saying like, uh, 96, maybe 97. And, uh, and didn't really find myself in a music career anymore. I just felt like this was done. I was done with it. Did you ever like walk into a music meeting at that time and they would just look at you and go, Oh, you're you're the singer from Wildside. We're we're not really into that anymore. No, I guess I was too afraid for that because there were opportunities to go. There were some labels out there that were putting out, we'll call them hairband style music. You know, um, like Nickelback. I mean, not that they're a hairband, but like. Well, I'm, I, even that's bigger in terms of the labels I'm talking, I mean, there was label. I mean, I think Warrant wound up on this label called CMC records, which is notorious in those right in there. in that time that you're talking about, uh, to put out all these, Hey, you guys are great. We'll take your platinum and, and try to capitalize on your platinum success with something new. Even if it sold 200,000 or a hundred thousand records at the time, they would have been successful because they were given no upfront money, go record your record. And, and then, you know, we'll see what we can do with you. And they were, they were the, the king of all that stuff at the time. And I had possible I had meetings set up for possibly doing that you know and all that kind of thing and I just felt like didn't have the lineup didn't have the people I was done I was burned out and I and I certainly wasn't ready to go back out on the road again we had a lot of drug problems on the road and things that I was trying to run away from and I just didn't want to go back there again well because I know in uh, 99 I, I guess the last uh, grasp, but you know, bringing that kind of music back into mainstream acceptance was John Kaladner. He uh, started Portrait Records, and uh, I think he did an album with Rat, Dokken, I think too, uh, right? I think Rat, Dokken, and Cinderella, but that album was never released. And uh, yeah, you know, Piercy said that John Kaladner, who's you know legendary, and you know Boston Aerosmith. Uh, uh, tried to make Rat sound like the Cars, and um, you I know never, I didn't hear that record. I I just thought the whole thing was really weird, and that even who would even give him the money and the green light to do something like that was really strange to me. I mean, I'm guessing that his reputation in the music industry was so legendary, and maybe he can turn shit into gold again. I mean, I don't mean to say shit, but you know, maybe he can 
you know, because he was uh, largely responsible for Aerosmith's resurgence. Yeah. And, uh, and maybe the thinking was, uh, well, if, if anyone can do it, John Calandra can do it. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, it didn't really work out for any of those bands. And Where's John Calandra? You know, I see him walking around my neighborhood all the time, and, and I've asked him to be on the podcast. And uh, he gave me the same answer Ron Jeremy recently gave me, you know, and which is a good segue. Oh. Um, and does, the, does John Kalodner still look like John? Yes, Lynn? he looks just like he did in the <laughs> dude looks like a lady uh, yeah. video. And I'm like, hey, Mr. Kalodner, you know, I'm a huge fan. I love your work with Boston and Aerosmith, and uh, I'd love to have you on my podcast. And he just looks at me and goes, "What's a podcast?" I'm like, "All right, well, uh, I'll see you later. I'll see you awesome. at Pavilions." That's awesome. And Ron Jeremy, the same thing. You know, uh, I mean, he's like the Robert De Niro of porn. You know, yeah. I can only imagine this. I mean, he's been active in the porn business for 40 years. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, so since you were burned out on the music business, you had to find another line of work. I did. I, I went down. I followed. A, oh, I met this really beautiful girl at um one of our very last shows we did in las vegas and we didn't see each other for quite a while and but i i was really into her and all throughout the wild side touring and recording i never really had a fixed girlfriend i was the only one guys always dragging girls and wives with them but i was the single guy and i had a great time and i never wanted to be tied down and i i had a, a really great experience not having anybody like that w with me um where all the other guys were on the phone baby i miss you you know while they're getting bjs and all this kind of crazy stuff you and, mean guys aren't faithful on the road yeah well uh, some of them are i don't think the guys i was with were that's all right not naming names not but naming names uh None of them are married to any of the same girls anyway anymore. So, um, but yeah, so, so I was a single guy and I finally, this, this whole music thing was kind of coming to a slowdown for me. And I pursued this woman and, uh, she lived in new Orleans. So I went down to new Orleans to, uh, stay with her for a while. As I said, running from myself anywhere, but LA and, um, while I was down there, I kind of needed a job. Didn't have much going for myself. So I think that was the big transition where I cut my hair off, which was a big deal. And um, I remember sitting in the chair in the mall at the salon. And I cut all my hair off and the, I asked the girl to give it to me in a bag. I, I wanted to take it with me because it was like such a big part of my life for so long. And anyway, I'm getting sidetracked. So. No, no, listen, <laughs> people, this is why I... People want to hear this, you know, because I mean, yeah, really they want to hear about my hair in a bag. Yeah, because bag. you I kept don't that hair for a long time. And I used to pull it out and look at it, smell it, remember what it was like to have long hair. And but I needed to get a job and it was really hard to walk into somewhere and say, yeah, man, I've been a rocker for the last 15 years of my life. And uh, I'd like to work here now. And I didn't want a job at Guitar Center or at a record store or yeah. Johnny guitars on sunset. Yeah. None of that. I wanted a real gig, man. I was used to real money and I wanted something real. And, and so, uh, she turned me on to a friend who was working on a, on a TV show. I got a job with a little bullshitting, um, 
working in uh, on a, on a uh, TV show for the USA Network. And uh, can you say what it was? Yeah, or? it was called. Um, it, it was horrible. It was called The Big Easy, which is a uh, series based on the movie. Okay. The, there was a movie out at one point. Uh, Matt Dillon uh, was in it. Yeah, I think so. And then, so in the in the in the TV show, it was a cheap rendition, uh, one hour or half hour, something like that. And I was working on that show for the entire season, you know. And then um, I was done with uh, New Orleans. It was about a year, and I moved out of there, broke up with her, went back to L.A., started getting involved on uh, commercials, TV commercials, car commercials, doing whatever I could to to make a living in the film business and uh, ended up with a job at Panavision in Hollywood, which is not far from here. That's a big one. Yeah, I was a camera rep there for a while. Learned those cameras inside and out. Got a really good experience there. And I ran into somebody there who shoots adult films. And it was really interesting to me. I knew that I wasn't going to go shoot a movie anytime soon because I just, there were too, I tried, there were too many roadblocks and there was no, nobody I could turn to in order to become some sort of film producer or director. So, hey, porn seems easy enough and you don't have to know anything. Let's figure this out. And, you know, together, me and this guy, he had a camera. I knew a couple of girls and they were cool about not getting paid right away until we sold a few of our movies and we started shooting porn. And um, so this buddy of mine, uh, who's also in the film business, a lighting guy, uh, we we started a, a sound stage in North Hollywood. We opened a big warehouse, converted it, turned it into a film studio specifically, primarily, mostly for porn. It took about a year before the industry opened their arms to us because they're a little standoffish. Because you were new. Who are these guys? We're not going to go there. We don't know. Are they going to, are the cops going to show up? What's going on? You know, all that stuff. So, but after a while, lots of, you know, persistence and um, doing our thing over there, we had a full scale porn production house, renting lighting, building sets, editing, and producing our own films monthly. And it started to become a success. And I found a way to make some real money. And uh, that was 1998, 99. Oh, wow. There. Yeah. So I have been successfully in the porn business uh, for the entire time. And that's what I've been doing. I mean, I, you know, I don't, I, I miss the music business a lot. I try to stay connected through some, some of the people I still know in it. Um, I certainly pay attention to what's going on. Although I couldn't tell you who anybody is today on, on any kind of popular music oh. channels, but um, yeah, I've just had to stay really entrenched and focused and and in order to be successful in the adult movie business rather than just some guy with a camera, you know, I've I've moved on to much bigger things since then. Now, what do you what do you think is the worst business in terms of the the bullshit and the just the unfairness of it because I know music much like comedy is you see some bands make it that shouldn't, some bands that don't should. 
is porn have its own area of bullshit to deal with? Oh, I think so. But certainly not in that, you know, the porn business since I got involved was again, you know, 98, probably what I would call the end of the golden era of big money. You know, the, the adult business, when it went from film to VHS, there was huge money in it still, huge money. And I was at the tail end of VHS when it finally went over to, to DVD. And just like the music business, uh, when the DVD business moved on to the internet business, um, a lot of musicians will say, and I'm sure you've heard this a million times, you know, we're all getting ripped off. Nobody's, you know, free music everywhere. Nobody's getting paid and all this kind of crap. And I hear it all the time. And it's the same thing for the adult business. You just need to be able to verse, you know, be versatile, come up with ways to, to change the game a little bit and, and uh, in my case, I was, again, I, I had that studio. Um, it was difficult to keep running that business because I had neighboring businesses in an industrial area that didn't like what was happening. Girls running around the parking lot naked and, you know, lots of, it was crazy. It was crazy. And, and very much like being on a tour bus, we ran that studio exactly the same way. I had an apartment upstairs and it was all night, everything going on and drugs and party. And let's go shoot a movie at four o'clock in the morning with five girls who were staying over and just, it was insanity, insanity. And, um, it, we just burned out on it. And at the same time, I was lucky enough to, um, there's a lot of things in between, but I'll cut to the Well, chase. let's not, no, listen, this, this isn't radio, baby. <laughs> we, we, we have no time limits here. No, no commercial breaks. So don't cut it. Cutting. Don't to cut to the chase. Get Sponsors to the chase. Paying the bills. All right. Well then, uh, so in between all that, um, with my, my business partner, there was a lot of, as I said, partying going on. And I was no, no, uh, stranger to having a good time. I mean, the one thing that rock and roll and porn have in common is having a good time and, 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 and the parties, the girls, it's all the same kind of thing. And the girls love the ex rocker dude. Who's now a pornographer who's got a mountain of drugs in his office. And so, you know, we, we were, we were doing it and I was getting lost, losing focus, finding myself doing more drugs than, than work. Um, specifically having a really, really tough time with speed. Okay. If you want to, you know, Oh yeah. You, you know, but you've held up though. I mean, I, I mean, for someone who's like partied and, and you've pretty much done it, seen it all, done it all twice. You, a lot, there are a lot of other people out there who look worse. Yeah. Well, thank you. But I mean, I, I, I feel it. I've had some unfortunate health issues that are I'm living with now from, from the heavy days, you know, um, the, the drugs, it was always lightweight in Hollywood, which seems weird, right? Because we're living in Hollywood, a little Coke here and there and some beers at the whiskey and we're off and running, you know. But once we hit the road and we were meeting people out on the road that had some serious offerings, <laughs> it got it got crazy. And um, I remember coming off the road when it was all over, uh, stepping back a bit, um, the, the, the need to have the drugs 
It was either the need to be out entertaining people on the road because that was my favorite part of it. Because that's a drug in and of it itself. Was, it was. It was. You can't, nothing can compare to it. And I'm sure all of your guests who are musicians would tell you that. You know, it's um, entertaining an audience who's singing back to you with big smiles on their faces and fists in the air and the passion in their in their faces and in the way that they enjoy your music right back at me was incredible. So, not having that. Well, I could easily access the drugs to mask what I was missing. And right. that's really, and my depression, all that kind of, you can see where that's going. And um, so I, I never really stopped the drugs yet. I somehow managed to get jobs and continue working. I guess you could call me a, um, uh, a drug addict that somehow maintained my life, my lifestyle without anybody really knowing, unless you were real close to me. And, um, I can't believe I'm saying this right now on your show. Well, I like so publicly. to, you know, I, I know you probably in prepping for this podcast thought I was just going to ask you about Gazaris and, you know, I don't want you to hit areas you're uncomfortable talking about, but this is about life too. Yeah. Yeah. And all these things just piled on and I was running this operation and having a great time. And ultimately uh, I met a woman uh, again, who, again, I was single throughout all that period. I met a woman and um, she pretty much changed my life. You know, she was having her own drug problems and we decided to to leave, leave L.A. Because I don't know if you've ever had a problem like that or or you're surround when you're surrounded by everybody that that is doing it and everybody that wants it from you or expects that you're going to be doing it with them. You can't get away from it, even if you quit. I quit a hundred times, you know. And then when you you find yourself back in that room again, and they're all having a good time, or what it seemed to be, you know, you, you, it's it's hard. So we left. We left California. I went back east, where her family's from. I guess you could call it some sort of rehab. It went on for about a year. We got married, and uh, while I was away. Just when I was hitting my breaking point, losing my mind, living in a snowy tundra. I'm from Los Angeles, so being in the snow was like miserable for me. Right. Although I thought it was going to be really cool, but nine months later, you know, the snow's just over the top of the windowsill. It's ridiculous. But um, I got the call from, uh, from Hustler, from Larry Flint, to come run his production studio. And it was like, oh my God, this is like a miracle. You know, they knew that I had the studio. They were one of my biggest clients at the time. And uh, so I got a, I got a nice call from one of the executives over there. Said, come and run this thing. Come and, come and produce our films for us. And uh, we packed it up and came back to Los Angeles. Didn't call anybody we used to know. You sort of dropped out, stayed hidden, moved it into the north end of the L.A. County area up, uh, you know, way out of L.A. proper. You know what I mean? And uh, and I drove to work every morning kind of quietly until I felt like I was in control of my life again. And I've been with Hustler for 10 years. And like I assimilate porn to uh, almost like guitar solos in the mid 80s. It's, uh, do you find... Uh 
like you know you had eddie van halen it's like well steve stevens he can do what he does and then Vinnie Vincent trying to outdo steve stevens i mean in porn is there a a conscious effort to see what's going on and try and outdo like okay well double that guy uh, did a double anal film we gotta do a triple anal <laughs> you know i mean because i don't watch porn to be honest with you oh, come on i really don't and can never? i tell you i've never had a drug or drink in my life Just come on never i'm, I'm a weird guy i'm out of here i'm leaving this is over I can't talk to you like this. Okay, if you're leaving, can we at least do a <laughs> duet of kisses, love, goodbye? I'll start. No. Uh, but I just, for, for me, uh, I just don't like the close-ups in porn. You know, uh, five minutes after a Lexington Steel video. When, oh, wait a minute. You I mean, know I, know, I know the actors. Right. I, I can't look at a girl's vagina after five minutes with Mr. Steel because then it, it looks like that thing Boba Fett fell into. <laughs> It's just, yeah. I'm not a graphic guy. Yeah. No, I'm a, I, I would agree with you. I'm, excuse me. I've been so, oh my gosh. I mean, if you can think about the amount of porn I've seen in live and in person and up in my face and all of that stuff, none of that affects me anymore. Um, and certainly if you're asking me if we're trying to beat the guy down the street with the kind of porn he's shooting, we're all really competitive. It's always been that way. I was competitive when I was shooting it for myself, and I certainly have to be competitive when I'm producing it for, a, a, you know, the king of porn, let's face it, you know? Um, and and so, uh, and, and uh, you know, because Larry Flint is 70, well, I don't know, 73 maybe, 72, I think, um, he's still extremely um, active within the company, and he watches what, we do and he's criticizes everything and so i have to make sure that our stuff looks as good as or better than everybody else's and it's not an easy thing to do you know it's not easy because at some point it just becomes gross well, and uh not sexy and bizarre and that, and that's not the kind of stuff that he wants i mean i'll never forget uh <laughs> i was I love it. I was putting, uh, is this explicit, by the way? I mean, you know, I, I try, uh, you can say whatever you want. I, I don't uh, try and go dirty, but. Yeah, we, we don't, I, I won't do that. But. No, no, please. I want you to. It, listen, it's given the subject matter. It, it's like when President Obama said the N-word on Mark Maron's podcast, it fit the topic they were talking about. So uh, don't, uh, no restrictions here. Okay. Um I was produce. I was putting together because part of my job isn't just to produce the films because as as my my official title is creative director, and so what we do over there is I I'm also the one that um, designs the um, the the covers, the DVD covers, the any artwork, posters, anything that's going on visually um, across the board for the company outside of the magazine. I, I'm the one who oversees all of it, so you know, getting into competition, you know, the typically a, a, a DVD cover um, is, is a very soft cover, you know, something that's like a pretty girl, maybe your boobs are out or, or something sexy, right. You know, and you flip that damn thing over and oh my God, there's things on there that are typically a lot more graphic, right? I mean, for a guy who's never seen porn before, you know what I'm saying? I mean, no, no, don't get me wrong, Drew. I've seen it. Yeah. I just not a uh, fan. I, you know, I just I, I can't look at some guy's foot long dick and and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I can't relate to that. Yeah, and 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 for me, my job is to find the guy with a foot long dick. 
Well, they're out there. Yeah. So <laughs> you can email Earl if you want a gig at Hustler and you got a foot long dick. How's That's that? uh, eSkakel at AOL.com. I get a commission, right? Of course. Because, like, I thought I had a pretty big dick. You know, right. uh, comics like to take dick pics of themselves oh. and show it to younger female comics just to, you know, uh, I don't know, gain uh, favor with them. And like every girl would say, God, Earl, you got a pretty big dick. And then I saw Lexington Steel video and I'm like, I don't got yeah. a big dick. Yeah, that's a, that's a freaking nature. There's, there's a, a guy guys named out uh, there like that. Castro. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 if it just Google Castro, uh, I guess you'd have to put Castro porn or Fidel Castro comes up. And uh, if you think you got a big dick and you look at his pick, uh, you don't got a big dick. Right. Yeah, there's, and so we we try to outdo some of the other guys, and the and the graphics can get pretty gross. And and Larry called me and he said, you know, uh, this is starting to look like roast beef on the back, and it's I can't tell what I'm looking at anymore. And these were pretty much looking inside the body cavity, yes. you know, and it gets it gets outrageous, and and you have to tail it back, you know. Um, but at some point, you know, I, I, I've put on the blinders and I'm making good product for what that is. Um, it's getting tough to deal with. I, I've got two daughters. One yeah. of them is uh, a two-year-old and, and I have a, a seven-year-old, almost seven. And uh, I don't want them coming home one day asking me more, more specifically what I do when they have a way to really, you know, figure that out. And I don't want to have to lie to them. So there has to be some changes moving forward in, in my life as well. I've, I've, I feel like I've run the, I've run the gamut on that part of my life and that chapter and that book is, is coming to an end, I hope, you know, but, um, is it hard to walk away from, I mean, the, the money is, I guess, I'm guessing, uh, you know, yeah. decent is the money's, but, but, you know, it's what I've, I've been doing it for so long, you know, it's, I, I mean, I can, on the back of my hand, I, I mean, it's so easy. And I, and I, not only that, it's, it's an industry that's, I know so well, I know everybody, you know, you mentioned Ron, it's a good friend. And, you know, I just, I know, I know everybody and I know how the industry works inside and out. And so it's a, um, certainly would have to be a major career change to walk away from it, you know. Different. Maybe, maybe, maybe on the main, more on the mainstream side of things, but it's not easy when, when your resume is marked with 15 years as a pornographer to try and now go make, you know, Disney's next film. Yeah. Well, I, I can imagine it'd be almost like, you know, you walk into a music meeting in the mid nineties, it's like, oh, you're the singer from Wildside. And now you walk in to say, I don't know, a meeting with Michael Bay and he looks at your last 15 films it's like oh you produced take it in the ass 17 <laughs> well you had me at one right um but yeah you, that's the you're right so i gotta own it and and i have for a really long time i'm not ashamed of it actually it's um done wonders for my family for my security for you know the homes we've purchased and the, the lifestyle that we live it's pretty cool you know so, but, you know, again, it, it, you know, I read these, these YouTube notes, you know, people watch, um, our videos that are out there. Some people have made their own videos of 
clips they have of us wild side. I mean, and, and then always somewhere in there, it says, yeah, too bad. The guy does porn now, or, you know, he's a disgusting pornographer. <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah, I am. There I am. Sorry. There's nothing I can say about that, but, uh, well, I, I learned a long time ago not to read YouTube comments. Uh, yeah, they get pretty brutal. Well, I, my newest obsession is, uh, the show on TV called air disasters. And, uh, what they do is re I have a fear of flying. So I thought, oh, if I watch this show and understand why planes crash, I'll get over it. And uh, there was this, uh, basically they reenact the crash in graphic form. And then they uh, have actors do voiceovers of the, uh, you know, what, what was going on in the cockpit. And uh, there was this one crash where a uh, fire truck was in the, uh, you know, the runway and the plane hit it and flies off into a building and the pilots burn alive. And, uh, you hear the co-pilot say, Steve, my skin, it's falling off. I'm dying. So that, wow, I'm so uh, macabre. You know, I remember watching Faces of Death. Like, I got to hear the actual cockpit recording. So I go on YouTube, find the actual uh, recording, and uh, you hear the guy say, I'm, I'm dying, I'm burning alive. And the first comment was a guy who just said, pussies. <laughs> like, yeah. and then the second comment was a guy calling the first guy a faggot. <laughs> And then the third comment was literally a guy who just said the N-word. Like, it had nothing to do. Neither pilot was black. They right. So it's like, that was like, if, if you're anyone out there, whether you're a singer from an 80s band, a comic, if you think you're great, put up a video of your best five minutes on YouTube and just read the first page yeah. of comments. Yeah, no, it's it's brutal. Like it's, it's, there's a lot of really nice things people have said, and I've I've tried to keep that closer to me than than the awful stuff or the negativity but um in general i think that um wild side was received pretty well people like the music like the songs you can still get the stuff on ebay for about 25 30 bucks whereas because it's out of print because but there's a box set out the wasted years i think it's just a special of music from the demos and some of the um, unreleased music, you know, that's not really a box set, but it's a, a, lot, a lot of music all slammed into one CD. So, yeah, that was something that was put together by um, an old friend, Steve Rochelle from Tough. He's got that label. Oh, absolutely. RLS Records, and he's got a lot of stuff that he's constantly killing me with in his ads every five minutes well full disclosure uh i uh advertise on metal sludge uh yeah. it's uh metal sludge.tv and uh if you go on there you'll find about 48 banner ads for tough cds <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> and inappropriate all banner ad uh but they, they can so there's not a website that they go to and get wild side cds and but they can go on stevie's they can go there they can go you know all the all the it's everywhere it's um anywhere digital download you, you know streaming all this itunes itunes yeah uh there's like three records on itunes and there's um and do you get money from these things? I mean, I want yeah. to direct people to these things. But. I, I, I would like to say that uh, I bought my first house with all that money, but I probably couldn't tell you that I uh, I bought my first bag of groceries with it. It's not like I'm getting rich. But you furnished the house with the porn money. The house is uh, the house is the house that porn built. 
Now, what if you put like wild side, like maybe during a nice girl on girl scene, I'll put my porn cap on uh, and you had kiss this love goodbye playing in the background, which by the way, I cried uh, when I heard that song. Is that it rem- right? Seriously? It, it rem- absolutely. It, uh, that and just another night reminded me of a girl who broke up with me. And uh, I just, the lyrics of those two songs, uh, I'm not trying to kiss your ass, man. I'm, I'm just, I'm a big fan of those two songs. Yeah, they were, um, well, then I guess I did my job, right? I'm supposed to make you cry. Well, yeah, I mean. Or at least tap into some emotion. Uh, were those two songs about a particular female? It seems, I mean, they had such a specific uh, voice. Uh, do you remember if, if either song was about someone who maybe broke your heart? Um, probably. I mean, at the time, I was this sort of, you know, nothing can break my heart kind of guy. But absolutely, it came from somewhere like that. Um, so I'd say, yeah, for sure. Um more more specifically i remember um there was uh, there's a song called how many lies on the album that was about a girl who lived in the uh, apartment complex that we had in hollywood so if you listen to the lyrics on that it's about her and hang on lucy if you're a big fan everybody knows that's about a hooker down on yucca and wilcox that we would run into in front of the playboy liquor every uh night we'd go down there for booze on a writing session in the middle of the night and so there were lots of songs that were written about characters or events that were happening to us so when they said go write with paul stanley okay i had nothing to do i didn't write a single lyric on clock strikes i went and met with paul stanley who was friends with uh our manager at the time barry levine managed the band and barry was a rock photographer you'd be a very famous oh, sure. rock photographer and he had shot all those famous kiss uh, images and so you know he called up paul and said listen my guys the label says my guys need more songs and uh, they sort of seem to be writing the same kind of thing. So maybe you can put something together. And at the time, Paul was kind of on a, on a break from kiss and was looking to um, um, expand his, 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 you know, sort of publishing of, of music, not necessarily tied to Gene, you know, his own thing. And so he was down to write with us. And uh, we went up to this big, I remember going up there on, on Christmas Eve to this big crazy mansion house beautiful house and we get up there and uh, he's renting it for the for the winter while he's in LA and uh, I was just starstruck you know sitting in, in in this little room he had we had this massive home we walk through all these hallways we come down the hall and we come into a room that's like the size of a closet and that's where he's got his guitar and plugged in a little amp we sit down and and he's got a couple of ideas. He plays a few riffs. Him and Brent start hitting it off. It was Brent, myself, and Paul. And uh, and I sort of felt like I was out of it. Like I, I, he had the lyrical content already. He had a riff. Brent jumped in, and they were they were going. And I just sort of pulled myself out of it with somewhat of a screw this man. Right. You know, I'm not part of this thing, man. So I left. They spent the rest of the the week working on the song, and then they brought it to me with Paul's vocals on it. I wish I still had that demo, but Paul kind of singing along, getting me through the melody of what it should be. I changed it slightly, took it up into a higher register that um, I was used to singing where he wasn't, and and then we recorded it. But I remember singing that song 
a hundred times. And every time I sang it, I knew that it was a song. I would never say those words in my life. I would never talk about when the clock strikes 12, I'm going to bone you tonight kind of tune. I'm, that's what the song was. It was basically about, you know, banging a chick at midnight and you're going to love my, you know, and the lyrics were just, just 80s cheese kiss. Well, I mean, and kiss. I'm as much, I can't, you can't take anything away from, from their super mega success. I mean, kiss is amazing. And, and I'm, a, I'm a big fan of old kiss. A lot, like a lot of people are the, the, the early kiss stuff is what I sh should say. And, um, not so much where they were going and where they are, but, um, and I felt like that song fit more in the genre of where they were going and not Love Gun, which I love. That's just just the greatest song ever. And I just love that style of of of, of their music for them. And um, so I had our time singing that song every night, but the fans loved it, man. It just connected. The guy was like, well, the guy must be, there must be something right here because everybody loves the song. And uh and I think I released a um, a live version of it somewhere. It's out there on iTunes. It's pretty cool. Oh, really? Yeah, you can hear a live version at some big venue we played. So, um, and that was, but, you know, and the same thing with Jim Valance for me. It was really hard mm -hmm. to write with someone. And if you listen, here's an interesting thing. If you listen to that, that song, which is called Monkey See, Monkey Do, which, by the way, again, not a title I would ever make, not a lyric that I would, you know, like there was a lot of influence by Jim and Jim, as you pointed out, was a real hit maker I mean, for Brian Adams. Brian, uh, Brian was really one of his first big hit makers. And then he, he went on to, I want to say survivor, but I might, uh, I, I know think he did. so he wrote with heart. I mean, if you look at his, his discography of, of work, it's insane of, of what he's done. Um, but the 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 drum beat the music the whole song sounds like it could fall in line with an aerosmith tune and if steven tyler jumped in and sang that in his style it could be an aerosmith song and that's what bugged me about that song most um just wasn't true to us but yet we were being forced to write music so that the label could have what they were hoping for which was just an, another hit you know and uh where I thought the record was ready, you know, but they didn't. I mean, do you, I mean, like you said with Paul Stan, you kind of went in, not necessarily a shell, but like, was it intimidating to? It probably had a lot to do with it, intimidation, but not because of him. He was super cool. In fact, that next spring, we all went to the Jersey Shore to a big house that, I don't even know why we were there. We were there, we're partying all, all, all uh, actually it was next summer and Paul showed up there with a bunch of his rock and roll buddies and uh, spent the week with us out at this massive home where everyone was in different rooms out on the beach. And we were hanging with Paul Stanley all, all week long. And uh, so for us, we were, we spent the summer recording at Eddie Van Halen's house with Ed right there, Wolfie hanging in a Bjorn, you know, one of those like, yeah. baby Bjorns right in front of him while he's smoking, by the way. <laughs> Valerie screaming at him from the house up at the studio to not to stop smoking. 
which I, he did I, not. I, I could tell you some shit, man. I could, I, I mean, you know. Well, I mean, I don't want to make you uncomfortable, but I mean, listen, let's, uh, I mean, we I, were, you know. We were having a good time and so was Ed. And let right. me tell you, the Coke was flying. The party was on. It was, we had Andy Johns, the biggest booze hound, heroin junkie, fucked up dude in the world we're talking british party animal who had recorded the rolling stones and led zeppelin and cinderella just, maybe? just finished van halen did cinderella i mean he this guy was a legend and now he's gonna record these hollywood little punky assholes who think that they're something special and we had some learning to do, and we did. We learned a lot from Andy, although I went head-to-head -head with him so many times because I was so frustrated with a guy who was 15 minutes in the studio and a half a bottle of, of vodka already gone and just sloshed all over the board, couldn't record anything at that point. And he was also engineering the project in many days, so he's having to operate the mixing console while I'm singing in the booth and missing great tracks and just drunk and Ed drunk with him. And just like, it was a disaster. Cause weren't you guys the only band at that time, other than Van Halen to use those, his facilities. Yeah, we were, and may still be unless his son has brought in groups, I'm sure, you know, but still we were the only, and it's, I'll tell you a really, really interesting story. Um, so fast forward years and years later, I'm, I'm sitting in my big shot executive office up in, in, on La Cienega in Wilshire, you know, I've been in that office. I'm up, I'm up, I'm on, on the fourth floor. I got a, a, a panoramic view all the way to Sensory City with this big office. And I get a call from one of my producers and it's crazy story. She's a, um, a transgender. Hey, whatever. Okay. And real cool, but six foot six with a big eight inch Adam's apple on her and big basketball hands. Eight inch Adam's apple or I'm dick? Adam's apple. All right. You know what I mean? Like I do. Clearly at one point she was a man, but has been living as a woman for a really long time. All right. She's producing some adult films and has this incredible um production idea and wants to talk to me about it. So she comes in and sells me on this idea and says, Oh, and by the way, um, Eddie Van Halen's going to do the music score. I said, what for, for an adult film? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So I later find out that she's bringing porn chicks up to Ed's place. And this is when he's not with Valerie. There was, everyone knows this by now, a, a time when Ed was like this, reclusive sort of up at his house, not going anywhere, no teeth, looked like a zombie. I don't know if you ever saw the images up. Oh yeah. I mean, really, he, uh, really bad. So it was pretty rough. He's going through a lot of shit and, um, no, no real Van Halen music happening at the time. Lots of fighting with him and Sammy and all that stuff. And I guess he somehow connected with this, this, um, producer friend of mine and, uh, agreed to do some music for, for one of these big budgeted adult films. So I said, you know what, tell, um, tell Ed to call me. And I want to talk to him about this thing. If evidently he was putting up the money for the movie too. <laughs> 
as long as they were bringing him the girls. And so I get the call and he comes to the um, Hustler production offices with her. And I'm not who he would remember in a million years, you know, because I mean, very different looking and obviously in a different world. And, you know, guy meets a billion people. How's he going to remember me? But so what I did to spark a memory was say to him, you know, I was in this band and I don't know if you remember what we recorded, uh, our record with Andy Johns at your house. We, we did all these, uh, we were up there for like three months, you know, and he looked me straight in the eye and he said, no one's ever recorded at my house except for me and my band Van Halen. And so I looked over at this chick producer and I said, hmm, no, man, you got to remember it was, was, was 91 Andy Johns. You guys were just about to embark on a huge tour going out with Alice in Chains supporting you. And it was that whole, you know, carnal knowledge record. I was trying to, you know, jog the guy's memory. And he straight up looked me right in the face and said, again, no one's ever recorded anything at my studio except for Van Halen. So now I look like an asshole in front of, you know, this girl and ultimately was never able to convince him of the story. And uh, I don't know if he, he doesn't remember or if he simply was being typical Eddie Van Halen, which is, in my opinion, a jerk. Well, I've heard that about him. Oh, my God. But... Uh, I, I, I got nothing to lose by saying he's an asshole. Well, I mean, it seems to be... Uh, you know, he just did a uh, interview where he kind of badmouthed David Lee Roth and... Uh, of course he's, he's the only guy in the world that's he and he is so i've never met an ego like this in my life he pulled me aside one day we were recording vocals again you know he's half drunk he pulls me out of the vocal booth and he says to me hey man so come and listen to your track just like you would imagine Eddie Van Halen to do it really cool. And I'm idolizing the guy. Remember, you know, this is like, for me, uh, let's see, this was 91. So 86, 88, 80, uh, 10 years earlier, actually, 80, like 83, 82, uh, 81. I was standing in line, you know, all night to make sure I had a good spot for festival seating to go see Van Halen. You know, I mean, they were like, they were like my my heroes, you know? So now I'm at the gate buzzing in to go record in his studio. So I was really like tripping. I was at Eddie Van Halen's house. We all were, we were flipping. We had strict orders by his team that we couldn't bring guests. We weren't allowed to tell anybody. It was this whole big thing. It was really hard to do because you know, you're, you want to tell everybody about it. But he pulls me out of this vocal booth and he says, I want you to listen to this track. And I forget which song it was. And he goes, you're screaming a lot. You hear you, hear you screaming? I'm like, yeah, but that's how the song, you know, that's what our thing was. And he was like, nah, nah. He goes, no, nah, no, put on this other track. And they rewind a bunch of stuff and he puts it on. It was, I think it was Looks Like Love. And there was a lot more singing involved. And so he says, this is much better. You should, you should do this. You should sing like this. This is, this is going to get you so much further if you sing rather than scream. So that was a really uh, an important moment for me in listening to him. Um, 
about my voice and what I could do with it and how it was not just always about screaming, you know, and I looked up to that. 20 minutes later, I'm talking to him and he is basically ripping apart every single successful musician in the world because I went through them all with him. I asked him what he thought about um, um, the current guys, you know, uh, uh, Axl Rose. Oh, my God. You know, terrible, terrible. Always about Axl Rose, never about Guns N' Roses. You might be right on that. Well, definitely. But let's face it, the, the guy's voice came out of nowhere and just, just, just killed. And I wasn't really asking him about his personality, but rather the record itself, which was incredible, you know? Same thing about Sebastian Bach. He didn't know too much about Skid Row, but he thought the guy was terrible. Uh, Jimi Hendrix, overrated. Uh, you know, every from every genre and every era, decade after decade, everyone sucked. <laughs> um, I tried to get into it with him on David Lee Roth, and he just didn't have a whole lot to say about it at the time. Of course, he is now, but and he always has years later, but... Um, just not, in my opinion, not a guy that really likes anybody but himself, you know? Which is too bad. It's just like, I'm a huge fan and I, you know, Wolfie's a, a, a pretty good bass player for a 20 year old kid. Mm -hmm. You know, I just, Michael Anthony's been playing bass almost double the amount of time Wolfie's been alive. So I just, it's not the same. And, you know, I don't know. I was, I saw him at Staples Center a couple of years ago. I, knew I was there. Cool in the gang. Yeah, I thought. Who uh, I thought Cool in the gang. I've been to thousands of concerts. That probably was the best received opening act I've ever seen. I mean, you kind of forget how many hits they had. But that's a typical Van Halen move: is to put something completely out of their genre. They used to do that back in the eighties. You know, who is this? I don't know. They. I remember seeing Van Halen and the Knack opened for Van Halen. Oh, they're amazing. They were awesome, but Van Halen didn't get it. They thought they were bad so we'll put these bad guys up in front of us you know and i just think that um the brothers both the same by the way asshole one and two have an allegiance to each other and you got to respect that i mean i guess you know there's this love for their family and they put their youngest van halen in there to really you know make that a make that a solid van halen name i don't know man it it's a terrible story about what happened with Michael Anthony. And of course, you know, thank God for Sammy to try and set things straight every once in a while. Yeah. I mean, you know, when Sammy's the voice of reason, it's a really wacky world. <laughs> and they actually, David Lee Roth has started to, you know, I think when they, uh, they did that MTV awards show in the mid nineties and uh, it was, I think they were testing the waters to see if David could come back and behave himself. And he was a little, uh, exuberant, uh, you know, now, you know, 15 years later, he, he's coming off the, the best guy in the band, like in terms of like, oh, he's just nice guy, shaved head now and Japanese body tattoos. It's, it's not the David Lee Roth I, you know, really remember, you know, but it's like, no, I hate it as a, as a fan. I hate it when, you know, guys like Van Halen, you know, he was shitting on Michael Anthony the other day, saying he had to teach him all his bass parts. And it's like, I, I don't want to hear about it. It's like, you know, Gene and Paul, you know, when they talk about Kiss and Ace and Peter, you know, I just, can't you guys just, at least for the fans, act like you like each other? Really? He said that? Yeah. That's awful. 
Like I, I can't critique anyone's musicianship because I don't play any instruments, but I have a hard time believing you had to teach Michael Anthony bass parts. He's a pretty accomplished bass player. Oh, maybe he was referring to something like when they first got together, but I mean, I can't imagine that being something they did down the road after albums and albums and albums together. But he was referring to like down the road like Jeez. you know i think he was trying to build wolfie up and you know wolfie you know for a 20 year old is amazing but you know i just uh you know but you know i like the vinnie vincent era of kiss so what the hell do i know you know i always seem to like a band's worst era like uh or i shouldn't say worst era but like least popular era like you know my favorite alice cooper era is vanny vincent was out without the makeup right well he was actually the last uh original makeup uh member of kiss he was the egyptian warrior right. he had the uh gold onk on his uh, face right and he was uh I have like a mild obsession with him just because he's so he's like the Howard Hughes of of music. Like you know, he's kicked out of Kiss three times in two years, but they kept bringing him back because he was good at what he did. Yeah, and then he's kicked out of the Vinnie Vincent Invasion. I mean, that seems. Imp I mean, like, and then Slaughter basically was the Vinnie Vincent Invasion. Yeah, I mean, that seems impossible. Like you, you know, I don't know. His he, name is the name of the group, say, and then uh, he got invaded. Yeah, it was probably the bass player's idea on that one. But yeah, oh, Dana Strum, the great Dana <laughs> Strum. He's, uh, do you have any good Dana Strum? Uh, Businessman of, 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 of hair bands. He was, he was like the, the, the actually really smart guy. He's like the poor yeah, man's. I can't, I, I can't say anything negative. I mean, every move he made for that slaughter thing was the right move. So. He's like the. I, I like to uh, say he's like the poor man's Gene Simmons. Like, right. You know, uh, he he is like a, a the, the B level version of Gene, and I mean that. Yeah, I'm a fan of Slaughter. I, yeah. You know, uh, yeah. I think he's responsible for getting Jakey e. Lee the Aussie gig. Uh, so you know, he's he's always got his fingers in the Mets. Sure. And uh, you know, I think Slaughter still tours to a degree. So yeah. Uh, but you know, this is the part. True. I mean, we could talk all day. Yeah. I mean, Van Halen stories. You know. Yeah, uh, well, as you know, I was just getting to was that uh, I don't, I don't, you know, music is uh, not what it was for me back then. You know, for me, it was, uh, well, it was, it was everything up all night, everything, writing music all night long, didn't matter what. Uh, at one point, we had management before the record label, and it was, we'll pay your bills if you write music. And that's all we did. We just wrote music, we wrote music and lived to play the clubs in Hollywood. And we did a reunion show, uh, probably the first time we got together with, with Brent Woods, the original lineup minus the rhythm guitar player who doesn't live in the States. Is it Sandy Simon? Uh, uh, no, that's, oh. uh, um, uh, Benny, Benny Ryan dance. Oh. And he wasn't, a, he wasn't around for it. And so we just did it as a four piece and we got together after about uh, 10 years of not playing together and did a show in Salt Lake city. They, some promoter called us and offered us ridiculous money to come there and do a couple nights. And so we went and did some place and the response was amazing. 
was really good. It was fun. I can't say that I could sing those songs the way I used to sing them because when you don't sing that kind of thing uh, that way for as long as I hadn't, I certainly didn't have that voice. And, and you know, you get older, your voice changes, things change. And so it gets deeper or I think it gets deeper and it's not exercised in the right way. And I hear some of these guys still doing it today and they've been doing it every day. And so they're able to hang on. They don't quite sound the same, but they're able to hit those notes, you know, the, the the tone in their voices are different, but they're still able to do it. And I really think that's great. But I just, I was out of practice, but we did it. It was great. And then um, a couple of years later, we did the Roxy. I think it was 07, maybe 08. Sold it out, had a great time, had a lot of memory. And it's funny, I was standing behind the curtain. And this is a, re it really woke me up. Uh, first of all, just the whole idea of, of promoters running around, telling you what time you got to be on. I'm up in this stinky, sticky, gross dressing room at the Roxy with stickers of every band from 20 years up there. Um, it's just really not my scene anymore. And I'm up there with my wife and trying to get drunk so I can go out there and do this thing. The place is packed. I'm a little nervous. It's a Hollywood gig, you know, and we hadn't played in on that stage in probably 15 years, you know? And so, um, but I, I walked out onto the stage and the curtain was still closed before they, you know, did the big, you know, wild side, you know, and opened the curtain. And uh, these girls who were no longer like girls anymore, they were older women, stuck their heads up underneath the curtain and we're looking around to see watching roadies run around and people trying to get the set ready. And I'm standing there looking around, making sure things are working for me. And the girl taps me on the foot and she goes, Hey, um, do you know where Drew is? And, uh, I said, I'm sorry, what? And she said, do you know where Drew is? And I said, I'm Drew. And she looked at me like uh, she had just looked at this this monster because all of her fantasies and all of her memories and all of her, whatever she was thinking I looked like still was shattered instantly because I mean, you know, you, look, you just look different. I just look different. I don't, I don't have long, beautiful blonde hair down to my butt. I'm not wearing white cowboy boots with spurs on it. And you know, some, flowing weird outfit you know um the pirate shirt <laughs> yeah you know i'm 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 just kind of standing there in a black t-shirt and some jeans and some boots and my hair is all cut off and dark and i'm wearing some shades and i'm ready to do a show and and really focused on what i'm gonna sing and how i'm gonna sing it and she was really kind of destroyed and she went nah and i said yeah and then she just put her head back underneath the curtain <laughs> And uh, and then I looked for them when the curtain opened up and they they were not at the edge of the stage anymore. So it was a real sort of like, wow, does it, do I really want this in my life? Do I care about all this? And the anxiety on the sh on the on the level of doing that show and and just back in Hollywood again. I, I just it's not for me anymore. I don't care for it. Yeah, I mean, do you really want to hang out with girls who were probably doing blow with Hatton and Harry and Victor were, the Snake Man? They were all there, man. They were all there, only they were 25 years older. Well, there's a thing also called gravity that these girls don't realize when they're wearing those tube tops from the... Uh, yeah. 
under the influence tour. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Drew, I, I mean, there's a million questions, but like I told you when we started, I want people to want to go. I want to hear more. Well, guess what? You're going to have to turn in for volume two. Where can people find you? Or do you want people to find you? Do you have like Twitter or F Facebook or like if they want to buy some of your films or not your films, but, uh, you know, I don't, I, I don't, I don't want to promote, um, adult, you know, stuff, No worries. you know, the, it, it sells itself. And I'm sure if people are interested in that, they can find hustler. If they've never heard of hustler, then you're living in a cave somewhere. Yeah. But as far as um, finding uh, me in, in terms of the regular world, they can go to, um, there's a wild side Twitter page. Okay. Um, there's actually a couple of them. I run one of them. I think one of the guitar players runs one. I don't really care. What's the one you run at wild side or, uh, you know, let me, I can't even remember. It's not something I'm on every day, but I'll tell you one second here. It's, um, um, it's at official wild side 2014. It hasn't been up that long, but okay. at official, actually it's just at official wild side, not even the 2014. So just at official wild side is the, Twitter account and I'll put up some classic stuff every couple of weeks, some videos. I'm editing a bunch of really cool on the, we, we documented the entire tour with an old super eight. And so I'm going through it all now. It's all been digitized and I'm cutting all the stuff on the bus, on the road, backstage, all everything you could think of and I'm putting a bunch of uh, videos together with it. And it's pretty cool. So go on iTunes, Wild Side's well represented there. But before you go, I just have one final question. Yeah. Um, under the influence, uh, one of my favorite, uh, I don't want to say forgotten gems, but a CD that should have been uh, bigger. Uh, what did the album cover mean? What did it what? What did the album cover mean? I mean, there's a little, it looks like a, a 13, 14 year old girl. Um, and that's just, uh, before you give me that answer, you know, back back then, you know, Winger had a hit song. She's only 17. Before uh, that, you had Kiss, uh, Christine 16. I mean, it was kind of a, a different era. Uh, I, I don't know if an album cover like that could fly in this day and age. Did, did it have a, am I reading too much into it? Because then there's a girl in the background as well. It looks like she's just sunbathed. Well, no. So what this album cover represented for us was that we lived in Hollywood and it seemed to us that everything in Hollywood was um, influenced by something related to this, this city, you know, Los Angeles and Hollywood. Everybody was either wearing it, smoking it, eating <laughs> it, and, you know, living a lifestyle that they were somewhat influenced by, um, something they saw and they want to be just like, and I suppose a lot of that you can hear on that song, Monkey See, Monkey Do. But as far as the photo goes, this was a photo of a young girl. You're right. She's 10, 11, 12. And we dressed her up to represent everything that was L.A. or Hollywood, in our opinion. A big fancy backyard with a beautiful swimming pool. She's barely wearing anything, tons of makeup, big smoke in her hand. <laughs> and behind her is her little brother, actually, oh, laying, laying in a lounge chair with a cell phone, um, smoking a cigar, reading the Wall Street Journal, sort of influenced by that side of things. And, and 
it just that's where the title under the influence comes from it's not necessarily influenced by one particular thing drugs or whatever okay. but rather all of it and, and i look at that record and i think it's pretty cool it's like an art piece because uh it reminds me of a classic album cover you know something you might see on a super tramp cover or something right. of that era rather than just us five guys looking with our fists in the air with a burning flame behind us or you know what you would see typical of of a lot of the you know hair bands at the time there was something well thought out produced and expensive to shoot and put together and uh and that's what it is well i just that was like my bucket list question i was like you know i stared at this album cover for you know, 24 years now. I, I thought there was like some deep hidden meaning behind it. No, but if you rub it with a sponge, all the colors change on it. Well, that's, uh, I don't really want to rub anything with it. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Uh, Drew, I can't thank you enough. I, I do hope you come back and, uh, you know, we'll get more. You know, I, I feel like I want to do a 20 names with you, just from various people from the past. But uh, I know you have a wife and two beautiful uh, kids to get back to um in all seriousness i, I thank you very much for doing this because uh, i'm a big fan of wild side and, and the air in general so uh you know guys go on uh twitter follow wild side but more importantly buy their stuff on itunes uh and just follow drew's whereabouts and you know who I am, Inappropriate Earl, iTunes and SoundCloud. I got some guests I'm trying to get. Uh, you know, uh, we're trying to get the singer from King Cobra, but uh, we can't find her. Uh, notice I said her. Uh, you know, it's a whole thing these days with Bruce Jenner, Caitlyn Jenner, you know, Mark Free, Marcy Free, uh, Mrs. Free. If you're out there, you know, come on down. You know, I, I'm in West Hollywood, so I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the area. And uh, Richard Black, stop running from me. I will find you. I'm just trying to get Shark Island some sales. And uh, Drew Rose, you're the best. Uh, thank you, Stevie Rochelle, for putting us together. And uh, this will be out very soon. And the support Wild Side. Find Brent Woods. He's, he's probably making business deals as we speak uh, in the back of Vince Neal's, uh, you know, uh, strip club in Vegas. So uh, thank you guys very much for listening. You're going to love this interview. And uh, we'll see you on iTunes and SoundCloud. Leave a review. I leave all the good and bad ones up. And uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you, guys. 